right, you guys can turn to Psalm 113. Psalm 113 will not be in James today. We'll get back to that next week. Psalm 113. Well, I'm grateful to have all of you with us today on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Lots that we can be thankful for. There's a lot on my list that I'm thankful for this year. Um, Texas Aggies, I'm really excited and grateful about our team. Um, And who knew I'd be thankful for TCU? I didn't see that coming, so that's fun. Um, But those are both kind of low on my list compared to other things. I'm, I'm really grateful for things like my family. This was a, a year of travel for us. We spent um, Thanksgiving with our family. Really grateful for my family. Um, here is how my, my three-year-old, Gracie, uh, summarizes our family. This is her drawing of our family. Uh, really quite good for a three-year-old. Um, but notice a couple things here I want to point out to you. First of all, Jesus. Notice three circles. She's already got the Trinity at three years old. I'm amazed. That's incredible. Um, And here's mommy up there with a smile. So Gracie has really good feelings about mommy. But here's me, and um, I don't really know what's going on with me. (laughs) I don't know, maybe that was a kind of stressful morning that day as she's heading out to school and daddy was crazy and excitable. I I don't know what she's saying about me, but uh, I'm really grateful for my family. I'm grateful for all of us as a community to be able to come together, an extended family to be able to come together this morning and give thanks. That's what this morning is about. We're going to gather together and give thanks. We're going to give grateful praise to God. And we're going to do that by looking at a psalm of thanks. That's Psalm 113. A psalm that is all about leading us to give thanks to God, to, to express our gratefulness to God. So we're going to look at Psalm 113 this morning to, to kind of prepare you for that, a little bit of background on it. We don't know who wrote it. We don't actually even know when exactly it was written. We do know what kind of psalm it was. It's similar to a lot of the psalms. It's what's called a declarative praise psalm. It basically declares to us reasons why God is worthy of our worship, why he's worthy of our praise. And and actually everything from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 makes up one chunk in your Bible that the Jews call the Hallel. The Hallel, if, if the ancient Jews had CDs and put together like worship mix albums, it would be Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. That's their worship CD in the ancient world. They would gather together and sing these psalms as songs of worship on their holy feast days when they gathered in Jerusalem. So we're looking at the first psalm of the Jewish Hallel this morning. So let's jump right in. Let's look at Psalm 113. Look with me, we'll actually just read the very first line, just the very beginning. It begins with the phrase or the command, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, what you might not know is that in Hebrew, that's actually just one word. Praise the Lord is the word hallelujah. Right there, that's the first phrase uh, in Psalm 113. One word, hallelujah. Now, um, hallelujah is one of those really Christian-y words that, that we use all the time. It's kind of insider lingo here in the church. We use hallelujah in songs. We use it to express excitement. Christians use this word all the time, but, but many of them don't know what it means. Many Christians don't actually understand this word. They assume it means something like Yay! All right! Hallelujah! Made a touchdown! Um, That's not at all what this word means. Hallelujah is much more significant than that. It's actually a really significant word in Hebrew. It's a combination of two Hebrew words. A verb, halal, and a name, yah. And, and let's, let's look at each of those. We'll look at them in reverse order. Hallelujah, the end of the word, yah, is a name, yah, which is short for Yahweh, which is God's personal name. That is the name of God, Yahweh. And you may remember the story. 
God commissioned Moses to go to Egypt and deliver the Israelites. And and Moses asked him, well, whom shall I say sent me? Because before that moment, God had always been referred to as God, the God. But there were lots of gods in the ancient world. Every nation had its God, its worship. So Moses is asking, who are you in particular? What is your name, God? And so God tells him, well, Moses, my name is Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is a really interesting name. It's fascinating. Um, It's not like the names of every other god. All the other gods you read about in scripture, Baal, Malek, uh, those are are proper names like Blake or Steve or Joe. Um, Yahweh is not a proper name. Yahweh is actually the verb I am in Hebrew. God's name is simply I am. It's fascinating because I think what God is saying to Moses is, Moses, there's no name, no proper name that could encapsulate me. No label that you can put on me. So I'm not going to give you some name like Steve or Joe to call me. I'm just going to give you the verb. I am. I am God in contrast to all those other gods that aren't. So God's name, I am, his covenant personal name in scripture, the Jews come to so revere this name, Yahweh, it becomes so sacred to them that some centuries later, they just stop saying the name. That They won't say Yahweh because they're afraid that they might speak it in vain, and that's a bad thing in the Bible. So they stop saying this name. It's so holy and sacred. Instead, every time that they get to the word Yahweh in the Old Testament, they say Adonai which means Lord. It's Hebrew for Lord. And to remind them to do that, to make that little substitution, they did this neat little trick. Everywhere in the Bible where they have the consonants for Yahweh, they add the vowels for Adonai, just to to trigger their minds. Okay, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai. Now, interesting little piece of church history. Um, Non-Jews didn't realize that. So we came across that weird word in Hebrew. And when you pronounce this weird thing with the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai, it sounds like... Jehovah. Don't know if you ever wondered where that name of God came from. It's actually not a name of God. It's a mispronunciation of Hebrew. There is only one name of God, and that is Yahweh, the sacred, holy, covenant, personal name of God. Yahweh. So that's the end of the word hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what it ends with, that name. It begins with a verb, halal, which in Hebrew means to praise or to boast. And, and it's used sometimes of, of praising a person. Um, you are expressing what, what you think is awesome about that person, but usually it is used for praising God, for boasting about God, for boasting about how great he is, for expressing your admiration of who God is. And, and in scripture, this, this verb halal, this idea of praise, um, it's usually communal. Praise in, in the Bible is usually something you do as a group. Like this morning, we are praising God. Occasionally it's used individually. You can praise God alone in your closet, um, but it's usually communal. Um, and praise can be expressed in a lot of different ways. In scripture, praise is expressed in prayer and speech and song, even in dance. There are dances of praise in the Old Testament. But whatever form you use to express your praise, the basic or essential idea of praise is praise is simply a declaration of your awe of who God is and your thanks for what God's done. That's what praise is, an expression of your amazement of how great God is and your gratefulness for all that God has done. 
Yeah, that's praise, awe and thanks directed towards God. It's very similar to that other word we throw around in the church all the time without necessarily understanding what it means, the word worship. What is worship? Unfortunately, we've become kind of programmed to think of worship as that thing we just did. Here on Sunday mornings in this room, uh, that is worship. We call this the worship service. The guys on the stage, we call the worship band. If they recorded their music, you would buy it and it would be called a worship album. Uh, The problem is, is what we do together on Sunday mornings is just one very small part of what the Bible means by worship. Worship is not just getting together in church and singing about God, although that is included in worship, but worship is bigger than that. Worship is anything you say or do that expresses the worthiness of God, that declares how worthy God is of praise. That's the idea of the word worship. Worship is simply declaring how great and how good God is to God. You express it to God, you declare it to God, and declaring it to one another. That's worship, declaring the greatness and goodness of God. So Psalm 113, right there at the very beginning, you see it is a psalm of praise or of worship. Psalm 113 is designed to lead us as a community into worship. It's designed to lead us to praise God, to express to one another our awe of God's greatness and our thankfulness for all God has done. Now to do that, to to lead us into praise and worship, Psalm 113 is going to give us two things. Give us two things in this psalm. The first is it's going to give us the prereqs for worship, the the requirements for biblical worship. I'm going to make an assumption. I'm I'm going to assume that none of you like to waste your time. You're busy people. You got got a lot to do in life. You don't want to waste your time. You don't want to squander your time. Um, So when you gather together in worship, when you spend time in worship, you want your worship to count, right? You don't want it to be a waste of time. You want your worship to honor God and please him so that it counts as worship. And so Psalm 113, the first three verses tell us the three prerequisites of God honoring worship. These are three requirements that we must meet if we want our worship, our praise to honor God, to count as worship. You get the first prereq right there, verse one, second phrase. Let's begin at the beginning again. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. O servants of the Lord. Right from the beginning, you see the first prereq of biblical worship is submission. When it says servants of the Lord, uh, probably a more accurate translation would be slaves of the Lord. That's the idea there. It's reminding us of this connection right from the beginning. Psalm 113 reminds us of the connection between worship and submission. You cannot have worship without submission. Your life has to be submitted to God. You have to have given God your life if you want your worship to count. Now for the Hebrews, it was easy for them to remember that. It's easy for them to remember this connection between worship and submission because of the posture that they put their bodies in when they worshiped. How did they worship back then? Not like us. They weren't standing with their hands in the air. They weren't sitting in chairs or pews. This is how they were worshiping back in the ancient world. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. 
The basic posture of worship in the ancient world was not standing with hands raised. It was bowing with knees bent and face to the ground, a position of submission before God. Interestingly, if you read the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, and you see how did people worship Jesus when he was on earth? Never standing with hands up. It's always on their knees with face to the ground. The, the, the woman, the immoral woman, was kissing Jesus' feet. Uh, Peter and James and John at the Mount of Transfiguration fall on their face before him because that's, that was worship, submission before God. Now, ultimately, it doesn't matter what posture you choose. What counts is the attitude. If you want your worship to count, you must be submitted to God. You have to have submitted or given to God every area of your life. And what that means very practically is there cannot be some part of your life that you're holding back. You can't be holding out on him. There can't be some area of sin in your life that you're just living with. You're excusing this sin and surrendering to it. If that's what you're doing, if you're holding back this area of your life from God, then your worship doesn't count. Because worship requires submission. You cannot rebel against God and at the same time worship him. Worship and rebellion can't fit together. Reminds me, um, when I was growing up, I got along with almost everyone. I would really say that growing up, I only had one kid who I would call an enemy. Like, like a kid I really didn't get along with. Um, and, and this kid gave me a whole lot of trouble. So uh, one example, in sixth grade, we were out at recess and the bell rang, so it's time to go in. And everybody starts to go in and, and he pulls me to the side. He, he calls me out and, and we kind of walk out of line and walk some distance away. Um, and I'm a little nervous because, again, this guy's like my enemy, my one enemy in life, really not nice kid. Uh, but he begins to say some really nice things to me. To my face, he's saying all of these complimentary things. It's like he's apologizing for all he's ever done. I just feel like, man, this guy's turning over a new leaf. This is awesome. And then I turn around because now it's time to go in as he grabs me by the shoulders and knees me in the kidneys. Dropped me to the ground. They had to carry me to the nurse's office. Wind was knocked out of my lungs. Uh, the point of all that is to say, well, what, is, what did his actions do? His actions invalidated his words right? All those compliments, all those apologies to me, they were meaningless. They were just an attempt to get me to let down my guard so he could really show me what he thinks about me. Well, that's exactly what we do to God. When we sing songs of worship on Sunday and then willingly walk in sin Monday through Saturday. Now, you don't have to live a perfect life. None of us do. That's not what God is looking for here. What God is looking for is submission, that in every area of life, you are seeking to obey him. You are trying to turn from sin in every area of life, trying to obey him through the power of his spirit. That's what submission looks like, and submission is required for worship. Without submitting, you're not worshiping. So if there's any area of persistent sin in your life that you've not handed over to God, that's what you need to do first. Before you come here on Sunday mornings and sing about God, you need to get on your knees and submit your life to him. Turn from every area of sin, commit to, to seek through the power of his spirit to obey in every area. Worship requires submission. Second prereq of biblical worship is the next line, the end of verse one, praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. The second prereq is knowledge. When it says the name of the Lord, you need to understand in the ancient world, names weren't like they are today. My name, Blake, it, it doesn't really tell you anything about me. You knowing that my name, Blake, all that tells you about me is that I will probably perk up if you say Blake. That's all you know about me through my name. But in the ancient world, names were much more significant. A name was a summary of all that person was. 
The name was just a shorthand way of referring to all of their character attributes and all of their actions. So when we're told to praise the name of the Lord, what what he's really saying is praise all of the attributes of God, praise all of his character, praise all of his mighty actions throughout history. But to do that, you have to know. You have to know what God's attributes are. You have to know what God has done throughout history. You cannot worship someone you do not know. Biblical worship requires knowledge. Now, not perfect knowledge. None of us are going to perfectly understand God. Not in this life. Not in the life to come. All eternity will not be enough time for you to fully wrap your mind around God. So you're never going to have perfect knowledge, but we all need to be growing and our knowledge of God. We need to know the basics of who God is and what God has done if we're to worship him biblically. And so just uh, very practically speaking, let me encourage you this Christmas break. If you don't know much about God, one of the best things you can do, just go on our website, download our free Essentials Bible Study. It is exactly what the name implies, the essentials of the Christian faith. Walk through those 10 lessons this Christmas break. It won't take you long. It'll give you an understanding, a basic foundation of knowledge about who God is. If you'd rather go through a book or if you've already gone through Essentials, my favorite short book on the attributes of God is Tozer's Pursuit of God. Not long at all, incredibly inspiring book. So really great book to grab this Christmas break and add to your knowledge about God because biblical worship requires knowledge. You cannot worship someone you do not know. And so that's the second prereq of biblical worship. The third prereq of biblical worship is consistency. That's the point of verses two and three. Uh, Look again at verses two and three. Verse two, blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From this time forth and forever, what the author is saying is that worship is not just for this day, for Sunday. It is for this day and every day thereafter. Worship should be a normal part of your daily life. Similar thing is said in the next verse. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. From the rising of the sun to its setting, that's talking about the east to the west, all over the world at all times, the main occupation of human beings should be worship. So worship is not just for Sunday mornings. If all you do is worship God on Sunday mornings and no other time in the week, that's not a worshipful life. Worship is meant for every day. Worship is life. Really, the rest is just details. Worship is your main occupation now and forever. Now, now that doesn't mean singing. Remember, worship is much more than singing. God doesn't want you singing all day long, all the time. That's going to look really weird at work or in class. Worship isn't just singing. Remember, the basic idea of worship is to express the worthiness of God. You can do that in a lot of different ways. Here's some examples. You can worship at the job or or in the classroom. When you're at the job, when you're at the office, or you're in the classroom, worship is when you just take a moment, just a few moments before class begins or before you get to work that day, and you thank God. For the job that you have in this economy, it's a blessing to have a job. Or you thank God for the class that you're in. If you're studying at A&M, you are incredibly privileged. So at the beginning of every class, take a moment and thank God for his grace to you. That's worship. You take those moments to pause and give thanks. That's what it looks like at the office or, or in class. You can also worship when you're driving or walking. When you're driving your car, do you take a moment and and turn the radio off and just look around 
at the world around you, the world that God has created and praise him as a gracious creator. When you're walking around campus and see all those trees and all of those things, do you pause to praise God? Third, another example, moms of little kids, when you are at home and the kids are driving you crazy and disobeying you and and driving you up the wall, do you pause for just a moment, just a tiny moment, and give thanks that God loves your kids more than you do? There are a lot of days when that is the only thing I can thank God for, (laughs) that he loves my kids more than I do. And if I'm really spiritual in that moment, then I thank him that, that he willingly chose to make me his child when I am just as disobedient as my toddlers. Take those moments to pause and praise, to pause and give thanks because worship is meant to be a consistent part of your life. God honoring worship is seven day a week worship, not just Sunday mornings, but all the time, pausing to give thanks and declare the worthiness and greatness of God. Okay, so three prereqs of biblical worship, submission, knowledge, and consistency. Your worship is not God honoring worship without these three things. So the psalm begins, first three verses, by just giving us the prereqs. We haven't begun to worship yet. He is just calling us in worship and giving us instructions for for how to make our worship count, how to make it honoring to God. He's calling us to worship. Uh, Now, there's a challenge, though. He knows, the author of, of Psalm 113 knows, the definition of worship, of praise, is an attitude of awe and thanks towards God. Uh, That presents a problem for us. What do we do on days when we don't feel particularly awed of God? What do we do on days when we don't feel particularly thankful to God? Worship by definition is an attitude, a feeling of awe and thanks towards God. What do we do when we're not feeling it? Well, that's why the psalmist included verses four through nine. Verses four through nine are inspiration. They are meant to inspire us to worship because we struggle. We struggle to feel all towards God. We struggle to feel thankful to God because we are busy and bored people. This is a reality for us. We're busy. And modern life is incredibly busy. You have so many things distracting you even right now. I'm not so naive to think that you're all paying perfect attention as I preach. There's no way. You have about 10 things going on in your head right now. Various tasks that you're thinking about, football games coming, lunch that you're really looking forward to right now, relational issues, class coming up, whatever it is, you got a ton of things distracting you right now. We're busy. That makes it hard to feel awe and thanks towards God. And we're also bored, especially those of us who've been in the church a long time. If you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've been here on Sunday mornings for a long time, then then God probably doesn't awe you a whole lot anymore. It feels very familiar to you. You're not hearing new things on Sunday morning. God for you, God for for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, like myself, um, he becomes like this sweater that I have at home. My favorite sweater, really, really comfortable sweater. It's a Gap sweater that's one size too big. It's really old. Uh, The Gap logo has worn off because I wear it so often. It is so incredibly comfortable and soft that I put it on and a few minutes later, I forget I'm wearing it. And and for me, the definition of a great sweater is when you don't feel. So I, I love that sweater. So comfortable that I don't even know it's there. Well, that's exactly what God has become for many of us who've been in the church for a long time. 
Something very comfortable, soft, and warm that we forget is even there. So we're just so familiar with him. And as I say, familiarity breeds contempt. We've been hearing about him for so many years. He's comfortable and warm, but we forget he's there. Fortunately, God knew that we would struggle with this. God's not surprised by our busyness or our boredom. He knew we would struggle with this. And so he gives us verses four through nine to inspire us. They're meant to be motivation to, to warm our hearts and draw us towards awe and thanksgiving towards God. So I want to look at these verses. Um, The psalmist is going to give us two reasons why God is worthy of worship. Two, Two things about God that motivate us to worship him. The first is found in verses four and five. Look at verses four and five. The Lord is high above all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? The first reason that we should worship God, the first inspiration for worship is God's greatness. That's the point of verses four and five. God is great. He is high above all nations. That idea of being high above is sovereignty. He is sovereign ruler. He is king of kings over every nation, over every human person on earth. He's sovereign. His will gets done. What he wants is what happens. Uh, the second phrase there, that, that God's glory is above the heavens. Um, glory is God's manifestation, his revelation of his power, his magnificence, his beauty. And when it says that his glory is above the heavens, by heaven there, it's not talking about where God lives. By heaven, it means everything that is above us. Everything that is above earth, so the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, everything in our universe. God's glory, his power, his size, his majesty exceeds that of the universe. Now, let's pause and think about that for a moment. I I walked you through some of this a couple years ago as we were looking at a similar passage in Isaiah. It's it's worth slowing down when you see about God being greater than, than the heavens and the universe to reflect on what that actually means. What does it mean that God is greater than the universe? You see, the universe is, is not small. It's, it's no small thing. Um, the universe is massive. It's 93 billion light years across and contains 80 billion galaxies. Now, I can't wrap my, minds around, my mind around those numbers. They're just too big for me to comprehend. So let me make it a little simpler, a little more straightforward. Let's say that tonight you go outside. Here's your backyard. It's a clear night. And you look up. And you look up at at a little tiny piece of space, that little tiny square, and you you look as hard as you can, and you're looking at that square, and you think, man, it looks like there's maybe a few stars in there, maybe three or four stars in that little tiny square. Um, But then someone gives you access to the Hubble telescope because they're having a good day, and they let you look with the Hubble telescope at that little square in the night sky, and this is what you would see, 10,000 galaxies with something like five quadrillion stars in that tiny little square of the sky of your backyard. That is how big and majestic and awesome and massive the universe is. And yet the psalmist is telling us it is nothing compared to God. If God showed up in our universe right now, this entire universe with its 80 billion galaxies would be a speck compared to him. The flicker of a candle compared to his infinite glory. The first reason that we praise God is because he is infinitely great. He is great beyond anything that we can imagine. His power, his light, his glory, his magnificence, his splendor excels anything in the created universe. 
That's the first reason to give praise towards God. It leads to verse five, the rhetorical question, who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high? The answer is no one. Nothing can compare to God. He is high above everything. That's the first reason to give him praise. The second reason to give him praise, second inspiration for worship is verses six through nine, God's grace. Look with me, let's read verses six through nine. It says, he who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. When it says that that God humbles himself, the idea of humble there is, is to stoop down. To, to get off his throne and to get low, to, to stoop down so that he can see us, so that he can see your life and all its details, so he can know you and know everything about you. And not only so that he can see you and know you, but so that he can care for you. You notice here what's going on. God is caring for these people. And specifically, it tells us that God cares for these two desperately needy groups of people. Two really needy groups of people who are mentioned here. The first is the poor. The poor who are, are so poor, they are so utterly poor that they live in the ash heap. They live in, in the garbage dump of the ancient world. Now, now, to appreciate that, to understand that, I'm not going to get graphic here, but the, the ash heap of the ancient world was where they put all of their waste, including what we put in a garbage can and what we put in a toilet. All of that ended up in the ash heap. And in this ash heap, all of this this horrible waste would be collected together and then burnt. They were continually burning. Now, why would anyone want to live among that stench and and filth? Well, for two reasons. First of all, because that was the only place to get warm in the ancient world if you didn't have a house. Didn't want to die when it got cold at night. So you lived among the burning filth of a garbage dump. And the second reason is because they needed food. There was nowhere else to go. There was no social security, social services, no food stamps. They had to go to the refuse pile. So when it talks about the poor in the Old Testament, it's not talking about like people who are poor in America. It's talking about people who are the modern equivalent would be poor in the slums of Brazil or Nicaragua or Egypt. People of of low caste, people who are desperate, who are emaciated, who are impoverished, who are typically naked and disease ridden and live among the burning stench piles of the world. That's whom God is talking about here. And not only does God see these people, these naked walking corpses living in the burning refuse of humanity, not only does he see them, but he stoops down and touches them and lifts them up and restores them and redeems them and delivers them so that they sit with the princes of his people. Okay, so God cares for the desperately poor. The second group he mentions is the barren. He cares for the barren woman. Now, um, to be barren for a woman is difficult, is hard, is painful at any time in human history. Infertility is always a painful pill to swallow. But in the ancient world, it was particularly painful. Because in the ancient world, uh, two reasons. First, a woman's worth was tied to her ability to conceive. A woman's worth in the eyes of society was based on the number of children she gave to her husband. So, so really, in the ancient world, if a woman was infertile, she had no value. 
She was worthless in the eyes of society in the ancient world. So her worth is tied to her children. Second, her security was tied to her children. If a woman could not have children, she would be desperate when her husband died. Her husband's going to die at some point. Who was supposed to take care of her? Her grown kids. They would provide for her and watch over her. But if she has no children, she, she has no safety net. She has no security. And so the, the infertile woman of the ancient world was one of the most vulnerable people on the planet. And yet what does our God do? The high and exalted ruler of heaven and earth stoops down and touches that woman and heals her and gives her the ability to conceive. He redeems her and rescues her because God is gracious. God is infinitely, amazingly, unbelievably gracious to humanity. Not to the best of humanity, but to all of us, including those who are most desperate and needy. Okay, so as we look at at these verses, as we look at this psalm, uh, we're, we're meant to reflect upon God's greatness. We're meant to reflect on God's goodness. Both of those alone would be reason to worship God. If God was just infinitely great, that would be reason to praise him. Or if God was just infinitely gracious, that also would be reason to praise him. But the the power of Psalm 113, the thing that really kicks us in the gut and helps us to see God as he truly is, is that both are true. God is both great and gracious. That's the amazing thing of Psalm 113 that is meant to shock us. My favorite part of this psalm is there at the end of verse five and beginning of verse six. Who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold? Notice the contrast there. God is on high above all and yet he humbles himself. I want you to think for a moment. The the ironic thing is that in our world, the kind of people described by verses four and five, great people are the least likely to be doing verses six through nine. Can you imagine if uh, President Obama and Donald Trump and George Clooney were walking together through the burning stench pile of garbage in a slum in Egypt? Can you imagine that? And weren't just doing it one day for a photo op, but doing it every day and not just walking through the garbage pile, but reaching out and touching and embracing and lifting up the naked, poor, diseased, ridden, dying people who live there. That would never happen. That's not how our world works. We protect rich and famous people from that kind of thing. And yet that's exactly what God does. Not once for a photo op, but every day. The almighty sovereign ruler of heaven and earth stoops down to walk among the garbage, to care for those who live in the filth. He embraces them and lifts them up. That is the amazing thing of Psalm 113, that God is both infinitely great and infinitely gracious. I call that the the glorious paradox of God. The glorious paradox of God, a paradox, two things that don't seem like they could fit together, but in God find perfect harmony. God is both infinitely great and infinitely gracious. That's the the paradox of Psalm 113, but you see this idea, this this glorious paradox of God's greatness and grace throughout scripture. It's repeated in many passages or combinations of passages. I'll share just a few with you. Romans 3, 23 to 26. You can read this later today, Um, but it ends with this great phrase that we just read and pass over without thinking, that God is just and justifier. 
Just and justify are two words that just, man, they sound like they go together. No, they don't. (laughs) They don't go together. Just, God is the holy, righteous judge who punishes all sin. He is the one who stands holy and sovereign over the universe, exercising absolute justice. No sin gets by. No sin gets excused in the sight of the just judge. And if that was all that God was, if he was only just, then that would be really bad news for all of us. Because we would all be dead. Because we've all sinned. We all deserve punishment. But the great news of Psalm 3, 26, is it doesn't end with the word just. He is just and justifier. The one who declares righteous, the one who forgives is the idea of that word. God who is just is also gracious. In grace, he forgives you. How? How does the just judge declare you righteous when you're not? Well, because he punished his son in your place. Jesus willingly took our sins, our punishment upon himself. He died in our place and rose from the dead so that God the Father could be both just judge and merciful justifier. And that glorious truth is what we call the gospel. The good news that in the death of Jesus Christ, we who are sinners can be declared righteous. We can be forgiven. We can have eternal life if we simply believe that Jesus died for our sins in our place and rose from the dead. God is both just and justifier. Another example where this appears, God is both unapproachable sovereign and approachable daddy. Now you get this by combining two passages. The first is 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. God is unapproachably glorious. He is unapproachably sovereign. The king of kings, glorious rules over the universe and yet... Romans 8, 15 to 16, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Abba was an Aramaic word that a child used for his dad, a little child. It was a word of tenderness, of intimate affection between the child and his own dad. It's like the English word daddy. The idea here is God who is sovereign over heaven and earth, untouchable in glory and splendor and might, invites you to call him daddy. What a paradox that God who is high and untouchable invites you to call him daddy and be with him forever. A final example of this glorious paradox of God comes from Revelation God is both terrifyingly glorious and tenderly loving. You get both sides of that paradox at the end of the book of Revelation. The first comes in Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, that is God the Father, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. That's one of those verses you can read and not think about at all. Totally miss the point. When it says heavens, again, it's talking about everything above us, the universe. So picture this, God shows up and and what happens to the universe. It's gone. Boom, God shows up and it's gone. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God has not yet shown up in this universe in his full glory and splendor. He's not not done it yet. All he's done is, is peek a little bit into this universe, crack the window just a little bit, let a tiny bit of his glory in so you can see who he is. But he hasn't opened the door yet. He has not walked into this universe. Why? Because when it, he does, the universe is gone. In an instant, God opens the door and those 80 billion galaxies go pop. 
They fizzle into nothingness. God shows up here and every atom in the universe disintegrates. God is so terrifyingly glorious that if he showed up right now, right here, that would be bad because the earth would be over along with the rest of the universe. God is terrifyingly glorious. And then just a little bit later, the next chapter, Revelation 21, we read, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So God creates a new heavens and a new earth. That's what happens at the beginning of of chapter 21. He's got to make a new one and no new heaven and new earth because the old one, you know, went pop. Uh, So he creates a new heavens and a new earth and he perfects us. We are resurrected and perfected so that now we can bear the, the full brunt of his glory. And he invites us to live with him in this new heavens and this new earth where he dwells among us. And not only does he do that, but you notice God reaches out, God the father and touches you. He touches your face and dries away every tear. Can that be the same God we just read about? The same God who is so terrifyingly glorious that the universe goes pop when he shows up and here he is tenderly reaching out and touching you on the face, wiping away every tear? Yes, that is the same God. The glorious paradox of God. He is both terrifyingly glorious and tenderly loving. That's the beauty of your God. This glorious paradox that God is both infinitely great and infinitely gracious. That's what we worship this morning. That's what we praise this morning. That God is not just the greatest being who's ever lived, nor is he just the most gracious being who's ever lived, but he's both. He's both. So I don't know what this Thanksgiving has felt like for you. I don't know if you felt very thankful, if you felt very blessed, or, or maybe you haven't felt very thankful. There's a lot of hard things going on for people in our church right now. Thanksgiving can bring out a lot of that. You go and spend time with extended family. That can create a little stress, right? You might be feeling some stress this holiday. You might be feeling some, uh, some heartache over, over a sickness in your family or, or over a relationship that's not doing well. You may feel stress about finals coming up or a job that's not going well, some financial stress with the holidays coming. The good news for us this morning is no matter how difficult life is, no matter how troubling our lives feel, we have reason for thanks because you have a God who rules high above heaven and earth with infinite power and majesty and splendor and yet who invites you to call him daddy, who knows you by name, who loves you tenderly, who sent his own son to die for your sins so that you can spend eternity with him. We are incredibly blessed people. We have so much to give God thanks for. I invite you to spend some time today and this week reflecting on these passages. Um, I, would, I would feel bad if you just go from here and this is the only interaction you have with Psalm 113. The best thing you can do with Psalm 113 is now that you understand it, spend some time praying through it. That's what it's meant for, that you would get alone and read through it as an act of praise. 
And so today or later this week, read through Psalm 113 and express praise to God for each thing it says. Look at some of these other passages, Romans 3, Revelation 20 and 21. Look at some of these other passages and pray through them. Use them as an opportunity to give thanks to God. That's what thanksgiving is about. An opportunity to give thanks, to praise God for how great he is and how good he is. Let's do that right now together. Heavenly Father, we praise you and celebrate you on this Thanksgiving Sunday. Thank you for a time each year that you've put on our calendar to remind us of the importance of giving thanks. Lord, you are a God who makes Thanksgiving easy because you have so blessed us. You have blessed us in so many ways. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. Lord, we praise you and exalt you for your greatness, that you are high and mighty, that you are the creator, that you know all things, that you have all power. We praise you for your infinite glory and majesty. And we also praise you, Lord, for your infinite grace, that you are merciful, that you are compassionate, that you have humbled yourself and stooped down from your throne to walk with us, to live with us, to care for us. Lord, you care for the lowest among us. You know everything that goes on in our lives. You love us despite all that we have done. Thank you for your infinite greatness and infinite grace. And Lord, I want to take one moment and just pray for any person in this room who has not yet been introduced to your greatness and to your grace through the gospel. I pray, Father, that this morning might be the moment when they realize that they don't need to earn your love. They don't need to earn your forgiveness. It's a free gift that you graciously offer them if they will simply receive it in faith, simply believe that Jesus died to pay the the penalty of their sins and rose from the dead to deliver them from death. Please, Lord, help them to believe. And for those of us who have received that gift, help us to be thankful. There is so much to distract us and so much to depress us in this life. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see through all of that clutter, through all of the pain, all of the struggle of this life. I pray that you would help us to see how good and great you are. Help us, Lord, no matter what we're going through, to find gratefulness in you. In the name of your Son, who makes that possible, we pray. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. We'll see you next week as we jump back into James.